This podcast is brought to you by eGauge Systems, advanced, affordable, and reliable energy monitoring. The eGauge is a data logger, web server, and energy meter in one device. With revenue-grade accuracy, eGauge can be used to optimize efficiency and for solar monitoring and sub-metering. Learn more at eGauge.net. For the week of August 14, 2014, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. I'm Stephen Lacey, Senior Editor with Green Tech Media in Washington, D.C., where a late summer quiet, a calm even, has come over the city. It could be because my co-host Catherine Hamilton of 38 North Solutions has skipped town and gone up to the Adirondacks with her family for a little getaway, but she's not letting that get in her way. She's found a little spot with internet and um, made them keep it open just so she could podcast with us. Greetings, Catherine. What's your setup like over there? Oh, this is terrific. I'm in Scroon Lake, New York, which is the closest town to our cabin. And I'm in what they call the multi-purpose room, which means that it is the town hall, it's the conference room, and it is the courtroom all in one. And now a recording studio. Absolutely. (laughs) So I understand that people could potentially come in. So perhaps uh, a town official might overhear your conversation. That's right. I've told them it's top secret, though, so they're being cautious. <laughs> Jigger Shaw, the founder of Sun Edison, is with us as usual. He's at home in New York City, where I saw uh, was pummeled with rain yesterday. You staying dry over there, Jigger? Yeah, I think Long Island was more affected than I was. But honestly, I've been fascinated by what's happening in Ferguson, Missouri. It's crazy. I mean, you know, they killed a black kid. And so this town is 20,000 people total. Right, 70% African-American, and their police officers, they have 53 police officers, of which 50 are white. Yeah, I've been really interested in the journalistic angle. So a number of reporters were arrested last night, and uh, you know they have every legal right to film police, but the police officers said they were uh, not allowed to film, they were moving too slowly, and they got arrested. So a lot of, a lot of concern over that, along with the racial tensions. And then on top of that, all the news agencies are still covering Robin Williams instead of this extraordinary story. Well, both important stories, unfortunately, sad stories and beyond the scope of this podcast. But I do want to remind listeners of some positive news. We have an upcoming live show in New York City on September 22nd. The gang will be at the WNYC Green Room for a Clean Energy Connections event where we will be talking about Utility 2.0. We'll have some heavy hitter guests, Sergei Monhovsky of Con Edison's Utility of the Future team, and Audrey Zibelman, the chair of New York's Public Service Commission. I think this is going to be our best live show yet, so you can find out more by following the link on our podcast page, greentechmedia.com slash podcast. And sorry for all the housekeeping here, but I do want to remind listeners of Green Tech Media's upcoming Soft Grid Conference on September 10th and 11th in Menlo Park, California where we're going to look at the future of utility analytics and also security issues, which we're going to be talking about on the show today. That event continually gets sold out, and uh, this Friday our pricing goes up another 200 bucks. So we're not going to be doing a live podcast, but our whole GTM team will be there along with some big-name speakers, and I hope you can come check it out and join us, and we'll have a link to that on our site as well. On to the lineup. Per usual, we've got a good show featuring a diversity of topics. Our first story is on cybersecurity and the Internet of Things. 
Hackers recently demonstrated they could break into a Nest learning thermostat, adding to the list of similar hacks. We'll ask how vulnerable those devices really are. Then, EPA is getting slammed by Republicans for its analysis on regulatory costs. We'll ask if the agency is being transparent enough as it crafts CO2 regulations. Finally, concentrating solar power has taken yet another hit. Is there a future for the industry? And before we leave, we will round out the show by telling you something you may not know. Last week, hackers, security experts, academics, and the occasional government spy convened in Las Vegas for the Black Hat and DEF CON security conferences. Those events are a chance to talk about the latest in security threats and also demonstrate them. One of the most talked about presentations at Black Hat was from student researchers from the University of South Florida who showed how to override a Nest thermostat by plugging in a USB stick and uploading new firmware. It's important to note here that a hacker would need device to do this simple jailbreaking process. They can't just break it into it via the software remotely. It's hard to imagine hackers sneaking from house to house individually taking over these thermostats, but it is possible that they could infect a device and resell it. This is just the latest demonstrated attack on smart devices that are becoming more common in our houses and businesses. So are consumers safe? Sure. So safe is a bit of a a nebulous word in the sense that, in my opinion, risk is a function of consequence. Before we all weigh in on this, I want to turn to someone who worries about this for a living. That is Eric Cornelius, a former chief technical analyst with the Department of Homeland Security, who now runs the industrial control systems team at the security firm Silence. He says there are definite risks, but they're not as big for the individual consumer. There's two ways to look at the problem. First is consequence to the individual consumer, which, you know, in my opinion, is not terribly high. Now, of course, as the home becomes more interconnected and more types of critical systems within the home are ultimately controlled in an automated fashion, there will be increasing consequences. But the uh, tax factor that worries me most is the fact that as the individual devices, say your refrigerator, whatever, your hot water heater, start to interact with your electrical meter, my worry is that they will actually provide an attack back, an attack vector back into the utility where more widespread consequences can start to happen. So, you know, I'd say at this stage in the game, it's not really clear what the long-term consequences would be, but that's what, start, that's what worries me the most. Along with broader grid vulnerabilities, there are also major risks to commercial and industrial building owners, which have a much more diverse set of connected devices to worry about. You know, essentially every large office building, every even medium-sized office building, has a semi-automated HVAC system. It's not just HVAC. There's all types of building management systems, right? You've got the energy management systems that help control the lights. You've got the elevators. You have the HVAC. There's a whole bunch of different systems. It's more of an industry paradigm. I don't want to make it sound like, oh, it's the HVAC vendors or it's the building automation vendors. This is a ubiquitous problem, and it tends to be most, uh, most common in smaller vendors who don't necessarily have the resources or have ever had the awareness and necessary training, which I know sounds like a, sort of a poor excuse at this stage in the game that anyone making devices that are network connected should be at least vaguely aware of this little thing called security. You know, on one side, it's, in my mind, unjustifiable that security measures haven't been taken. Some of them, though, there is some responsibility on the integrator and the asset owner operator in the sense that uh, the web interface is the big vulnerability here isn't that there was an actual software vulnerability present. It's that there's a configuration portal, in this particular case, the web portal, that was attached directly to the Internet. 
that's not necessarily a vulnerability. That's just a deployment issue and a, a lack of security awareness by whoever either A, integrated the system, or B, whoever's oper- currently operating the system. It's just a bad practice to have an unprotected IP-enabled device hooked directly to your network and directly to the Internet. All right, so let's talk about these risks in the home, in buildings, and on the grid. Even all the way out in the Adirondacks, mostly off-grid, Catherine has been following this story along with us. Um, what's your take on this latest hack, Catherine? Um, you know, are, are we prepared for this? Yeah, so I would just say, remember this hack, as you mentioned, was a physical hack. So if someone's going to go into your house and break into your uh, anything, they're going to take your silver. They're not going to try to reprogram your thermostat. So, you know, if you think of this as just a physical hack, that's one issue. But if you look at it as like a cloud, you know, what happens to the data when it gets to the cloud? Well, companies that work in direct partnership with utilities have a lot of this built into their systems. They're basically on the same level of security as a traditional utility would be. There are um, definitely data standards in place for these companies to follow. I think those are going to have to increase. But part of the issue is that um, some of these threats and vulnerabilities need to, have, need to have information sharing between the private sector. So utilities, whether it's utilities and government or utilities and there are third-party companies that are selling you know, products like the Nest, um, they need to be able to share information about threats and vulnerabilities out there while having liability protection. So those are things, that's something that needs to happen through policy to make sure that they are able to get liability protection so that they can share information. Um, They need increased intelligence from the government. When the government finds, DHS finds out something that's going on, utilities in the private sector need to know. And then the final sort of policy issue is that utilities really need to be able to get rate recovery for grid hardening. And there are different types of grid hardening. Of course, there's the kind where you're putting in a steel pole instead of, you know, a wooden pole. But there also are cyber hardening issues. And if the utilities are able to get uh, rate recovery based on a set of some kind of um, hardening principles that would, you know, not, you know, that would assess the risk so that you're not hardening things that don't need to be hardened. So nobody's going to hack into my, you know, the smart meter at my cabin here. And that wouldn't matter because the risk is so low. But they do need to get rate recoveries for some of these. And I think that those are going to be done on a state by state basis. You have a smart meter at your cabin? I do. Um, yeah, I felt bad for the person who came and installed it because I knew what they were doing. And they were just, um, they weren't completely upfront about what they were, why they were putting it in. And I said, I know why you're putting it in. And it's okay. You want to be able to read it from the road. And I'm good with that. No, it's the government wanting to control you while you're off grid, Catherine. <laughs> yeah, there's just not a lot to control where we are. <laughs> All right. But in reality, so are the utilities having trouble getting compensated for these security measures? Is that like a real issue that they're dealing with? Well, they need to work, you know, it has to be done state by state with their regulators for them to be able to make a case for, you know, being able to get rate recovery for different measures that they put into place. Now, some of the really big things they do, because of course, there are NERC requirements, and they get fined a lot of money if they don't comply. But for some of this, you know, some of this is a little bit of a moving target. And so I think that's going to be, you know, over time, they're going to have to develop, you know, different standards, and they need they need to be reasonable, they can't certainly be, um, you know, hyper uh, sensitive, but at least be able to get to some of some of the issues around the cloud and all the data privacy and um, cyber information out there. Yeah. Uh, So there are a lot of actors here 
and certainly the consumer issues are really important, but I think outlining those issues associated with the utility are crucial. And so when I talked to Eric over at Silence, he, he talked about this cascading chain of vulnerability. And so if you look at the law of large numbers, as these devices continue to fall, it's very likely that a vulnerable device communicating with the smart meter can find more vulnerabilities along the grid system. And interestingly, Cisco put out a report, its 2014 risk report, and it found that malware encounters are shifting toward electronics manufacturing and the agricultural mining and utility industries at about six times the average uh, compared to other industry verticals. So, Jigger, what's your take? Well, look, I mean, I think that we're increasingly relying on the smart grid to be able to control this dynamic grid so that we can include all sorts of innovations from renewable energy to energy efficiency, continuous commissioning, et cetera. And a lot of that stuff is based on the cloud, which means that there has to be some standards in place to figure this out. Um, I do think it's, you know, I do think it's the, the government's responsibility and not ours to figure this out. Um, you know, our job is to sell it, deploy it, finance it, get it out in the marketplace. But it's the government's responsibility through standards bodies to make sure that what we're deploying actually has the right level of security and, you know, and um, and uh, countermeasures built into it so that uh, the customers are safe. Yeah, and they're definitely not ignoring it. I mean, those are definitely, a lot of those are in place. It's just that technology is such a moving target that they have to, you know, there's there's this constant need for, you know, making sure that all of the firewalls in place that are needed. And I would just say the utilities are probably one of the most secure um, because of all the different, you know, firewalls that they have. I mean, DOE is certainly leading on this and so are the utilities. So I didn't mean to say otherwise. You know, one of the things that we talked about that I think presents more of a risk than these consumer devices are all these systems within a building. And you look at the building energy management systems, the software layered on top, the intelligent lighting systems. There are very real vulnerabilities if some of these systems are directly Internet facing. And in May of last year, Silence uncovered a major hole in Google's building management system that allowed them to control different elements of a building in Australia. And they found 25,000 other similar systems that were interfacing the internet that could be directly hacked. Remarkable. So these are the consequences that we have to think about as buildings themselves get more intelligent. So this consumer piece, I think, is extremely important to talk about. But for now, many of these hacks are just bots going into a DVR or a refrigerator or perhaps a thermostat and sending out spam. When you're talking about a building system, a hotel, an industrial facility, they can actually control equipment, they can control the lighting systems, and that is a very, very potentially dangerous situation. But I think Catherine is right about this trust element that utilities have, which is that, you know, look at Constellation. Constellation promised um, to deploy 2 million smart meters in their territory. The Public Service Commission rejected the program in 2010. Then they went back and put it in with conditions. Constellation didn't meet the conditions. They didn't actually uh, save the consumers as much money as they said they would. And I think what Catherine was suggesting, which I agree with, is that they should be a lot more intelligent about how many meters they deploy, how they deploy them, who's actually going to benefit from them. They probably could have gotten away with only deploying 500,000 meters and getting 80% of the same amount of value. 
But they didn't. They said, well, if we're going to fleece the ratepayer, we might as well fleece them all the way. Let's put in all $2 million. So, first of all, they have firewalls built into every piece of equipment that they put in. And, you know, about NERC standards, they're held to very high standards at substations and other really key vulnerable spots along the grid. When it gets down to the meter by meter level, I mean, I just... I think there's um, a lot less ability for someone to do uh, damage because it's so disaggregated. And I think, um, you know, they have some pretty high standards for companies that they work with, like like an O-Power, for example, that works in direct partnership with the utility, would have, you know, privacy principles and security principles in place that they would adhere to based on what the utilities need. And so I think as utilities look at who they're going to work with um, as they're providing, um, and, and either, and and also how third parties are going to work with consumers, that this is going to be something that they're going to have to prove to consumers and say, hey, there's some sort of a seal of approval or there's some kind of a standard that we're adhering to that ensures that, you know, that your data is secure and your privacy is also kept secure. Right. You know, I typically break these things down into two separate pieces in my head, and that is the utility sector and then all these other consumer level devices, either in the home or in businesses. But you know, it's increasingly apparent that these are so connected together, joined by smart metering and sub-metering systems. It's important to note that a lot of these systems you have to be very close to or actually physically in contact with in order to hack. So like a smart meter, for example, you have to be pretty close to it. You can use like some sort of optical converter device like infrared light to hack into the system and you take it over with your laptop. But it's very disaggregated, as you said, and so it's pretty hard to do this on a mass scale. But as people hack into these individual devices, there is potential to have a cascading impact down the system, and a lot of security experts are worried about exactly that. There are now so many entry points onto the grid. The security systems are pretty good, but there are a lot of ways to get through them. Yeah, I mean, look, we're, when you look at building IQ system, for instance, what they're saying is give us all your data in the cloud so we have you know, full-time people sitting in one big warehouse that controls your building from remote locations, right? I mean, if somebody can hack into building IQ stuff, they could control your building. When the lights turn on, when the HVAC turns on, all that stuff, that's what they're promising with continuous commissioning. So they're people that are definitely at risk, and we do need the utilities and others to work together to figure this out. My challenge is, is I think through the smart meter program in general, a lot of the utilities have lost trust with their ratepayers and lost trust with the Public Service Commission. So if they come back and say, we need to roll this thing out at the cost of $100 million of rate basing to be able to make things more cyber hard, it's not you know, it's 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 not going to be an automatic rubber stamp that the public service commissions are going to give to the utility because they lost that trust with their smart meter rollout. Yeah, I don't think that's universally the case. Um, you know, especially for those utilities that are using um, services um, like O Power and others providing, where you know they're they're actually interacting much much more with their consumers. I think that's a, a different story. Okay, I want to take a break here to recognize our sponsor. E-Gage Systems, which is a manufacturer of next-generation energy meters. By combining a revenue-grade energy meter, a data logger, and web server into one fully integrated device, E-Gage provides real-time access to second-by-second data presented on a user-friendly interface. E-Gage is an ideal solution to monitor and view as many as 12 circuits, all with no ongoing fees. 
Applications for the e-gauge meter include solar generation and building demand, sub-metering, performance contracts, lead projects, and net zero buildings. Uh, And those can apply to a wide range of industry professionals. If you're a solar installer, a portfolio manager, investor, building management professional, HVAC contractor, data aggregator, or an energy software provider, the e-gauge meter is your device. Measure every moment with eGage. To learn more, go to www.egage.net. All right, let's go over to the Environmental Protection Agency. As the EPA gets ready to implement its landmark carbon rule, new questions have arisen about how the agency models the cost of its regulations. In a report this week, the Government Accountability Office concluded that EPA's impact analyses were not always clear and strayed away from transparency standards. GAO did not look at the upcoming CO2 rule, but congressional Republicans seized on the report and used it as rhetorical ammunition against it, claiming EPA is doing sloppy analysis. Catherine, what did GAO conclude? It's certainly a lot more nuanced than the political reaction. Yeah, absolutely. And GAO is, um, I've actually been audited by them twice, um, purely at random. And they're actually very helpful as an organization. Um, This was for lobbying compliance. And and it was just, it was totally, you know, random, uh, you know, look at what we were doing. But they're actually super helpful. They, you know, they know what the rules are, they understand how to comply. And so for them to do this report seemed, you know, it seemed like a pretty credible analysis. Now, that doesn't stop the politics. So first of all, just, you know, Representative Issa, who's the, who's a Republican from California, his chair of House Oversight, has been absolutely beating up the administration with a narrative um, that won't stop. So, you know, he was the big cylinder, anti-cylinder guy, you know, kept that going on for a while. And now he's using EPA and trying to make this um, kind of somehow show throw any doubt on what EPA is doing. And then he teamed up with um, Senator David Vitter, who's the ranking member of um EPW on the Senate side, who's a Republican from Louisiana. So these two guys said, all right, you look into this. And they're just trying everything they can to punch holes in EPA. And so I think the the result is going to be that this isn't going to change anything that they do, unfortunately. Um, But from EPA's standpoint, uh, again, as you said, they did not look at the greenhouse gas rule 111D. They looked at seven other rules um, that had been promulgated. And the GAO also said that you couldn't generalize what EPA does based on these other rules. They looked at the boiler mac, the medium and heavy duty um, vehicle, the fuel efficiency standards, the RFS. And what they did was they said, all right, now what what EPA has to do when they promulgate a regulation is that they have to do what's called an RIA, a regulatory impact analysis. And the regulatory impact analysis has to look at why would you do the regulation? You know, what are the reasons, whether it's statutory, judiciary, what findings, why would you promulgate it? What are the alternatives to that regulation? What are the costs and benefits? And then what are the assumptions that are built into those costs and benefits? So then this this analysis, this RIA, is sent to OMB with the draft rule and OMB, which is the Office of Management and Budget at the White House, then goes into this special room <laughs> for a long time and they figure out, like, is this something that's, you know, reasonable? Do they have reason to do it? Is this, a, a you know, the correct rule? Now, the RIA, which is what really the GAO focused on, doesn't have everything to do with what the rule is. So in some ways, for example, on the fuel efficiency standards, the RIA, 
RIA was a primary reason that that rule was promulgated. Whereas with the RFS, because the RFS was mandated by Congress, this regulatory analysis didn't have much of a role because it was a legislative mandate. And so they didn't even look at a lot of different alternatives to it, um, to doing this rule because it Congress said they needed to. So the, this particular analysis is not always done in the same way. It's not always given the same weight. So with that said, you know, they were EPA, they were, they told EPA, look, you need to be, um, you know, have more clarity in what you do. Um, it, it had nothing to do with whether or not what they did was good or bad. It was really about the clarity and transparency. And they've said, you know, you're supposed to write it in a way that anybody can understand. Well, if anybody has read a FERC rule, this is like reading the boxcar children. I mean, <laughs> it is literally so much easier to go through an EPA rule than it is a FERC order. Um, so those are kind of like the just sort of the background of what the story is. Yeah, that's a good that's good context. But is there anything shady going on here? I mean, stepping back, taking an objective look, is it just that EPA is being incomplete or is there the possibility that they're doing this on purpose? Is there yeah, absolutely not. In fact, GAO found that the EPA is good at analyzing the impacts of regulation and looking at different regulatory alternatives, analyzing uncertainty. They said they're good at that. Um, what they're not as good at is writing it with clarity. Um, and there are other issues about, you know, when you build um, an economic argument, there's not a lot of data out there in certain areas. So there's not a lot of data now on integrating kind of intergenerational intergener benefits. It's really difficult for economic analysis. There's not um, a lot of information on sort of job, you know, job retention, job loss, just because we're still collecting that data. And so some of it is just about them not having enough peer-reviewed data to use. They use everything they can. It does yeah. not, it did not appear at all from this report that EPA is doing anything nefarious at all. Well, they did say that the employment impacts were based on a 20-year-old study that seems pretty concerning. You're saying that there's really not that good, the jobs data is not that good? No, there haven't been really any great peer-reviewed analyses that have come out recently, and they're waiting for some to come out because they want to be able to use them more. Um, the OMB guidance on how to do a rule and how to do these analyses, the last guidance was issued in 2003. So that in itself is a little dated. Um, the guidance that has been updated consistently is sort of the social cost of carbon. That really was what these guys are trying to get at. And just so that people don't think that the social cost of carbon is some kind of like ephemeral externality. This is really about coming up with, you know, the net agricultural productivity, human health impact, property damage from increased floods, the value of ecosystems. They're really trying to put a number on a lot of these different things to come up with the social cost of carbon. So it really is something that has that is pretty specific in the way they do it. Um, but it, again, I mean, this report did not show that there was anything done um, wrong that there was any, you know, anything done um, on the part of EPA that was incorrect. It was really just a matter of, you know, how to write things for, a, for other people to understand. Interestingly, a day after this report, a group of journalists sent a letter to Administrator Gina McCarthy criticizing the agency for requiring independent scientists working with EPA to refrain from talking with reporters and requiring them to go through official channels. Um, and a journalist previously called out the agency for refusing to talk on record with reporters about the carbon rule that was in the works. And for an agency under pretty intense scrutiny from political adversaries, that really doesn't look good. 
Yeah, but remember the current rule, which is still they're still taking comments, and so it's still in the in process. That wasn't even what was looked at for the study at all. So the study is completely separate from that greenhouse gas rule. And I could see why EPA would be, you know, everything that is said now has to be on the record because it's built, they're building the record to create the final rule by the end of this, you know, by the end of next summer. And so I could see how there would be, you know, there, there's just completely different issues. This report has really nothing to do other than like, maybe this will help them come up with a clearer way to, you know, to, to write the, the, this regulatory analysis, it was just about the regulatory analysis piece of it, this impact analysis. You know, maybe they'll write it clearer for this next rule. I don't think that's going to have any impact at all on the politics. Jigger, any thoughts here? I agree. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I, I mean I, look, I certainly don't think that any of the compliance rules for the carbon regulations at the state level are going to be affected by this. You know, politically – there's going to be a lot more beating up of the EPA, a lot more beating up of environmentalists, a lot more beating up of climate change. But, you know, and we're sort of used to that. So I don't think this is anything different than what we're already used to. Yeah. And this doesn't cover at all the legality of anything. This had nothing to do with whether, you know, EPA had the legal authority to do anything. This was really about how they write their reports. Since we're on this subject, what's your take on Texas saying that it will not craft its own rules and make EPA do it? I think it's really stupid on the part of Texas. You know, what the environmental groups have done well, which they haven't done a ton well, but one of the things they've done really well is to hire 300-plus people to work out of D.C. to do this for them. So EPA will be like, hey, NRDC and EDF, why don't you help us craft this rule for, for, you know, for Texas? And then they'll work with this other consultant and that consultant, and they're experts at it. So Texas would have gotten a better product, I think, that meets their political needs if they do it internally. But if you outsource to EPA, you're going to get exactly what NRDC and EDF want you to get. Well, yeah, it wouldn't, it doesn't make any sense to me that states wouldn't at least try to have input and, you know, sort of try to define me- what methodology they want used for their state, because there is just so much flexibility built into this that an EPA is taking all comers at this point. So in my mind, it's, it's a huge missed opportunity for a state, even if you don't agree with the approach to not say something about how you want your state to be handled. It's this iterative cycle. The more Republicans push back and put their hands down and refuse to negotiate, the more they get rules that they don't agree with and can't do anything about. Well, they missed the opportunity with the cap and trade bill. So this is what they're getting. All right, let's go into our third story. Is there a future for concentrating solar power? Earlier this month, the French nuclear giant Areva became the latest industrial powerhouse to divest from concentrating solar power, shutting down the business it acquired from Osra in 2010. This follows a similar move from Siemens, which halted its trough CSP business last year. Meanwhile, other struggling CSP startups have moved into ancillary markets like oil recovery or processed steam for industrial use. It's yet another dark sign for the industry, which has been threatened by cheap natural gas and ever cheaper solar PV. Jigger, you've never really been all that enthusiastic about CSP. Uh, what does Ariva's divestment tell you? Well, I think it tells you exactly what we've been saying for the last I think for me, since 2007, for others probably since 2010, which is that CSP doesn't make any sense. It's you know, it's not just that that um, it costs a lot and all those other things, but it's also that it uses water. I mean, CSP is very expensive, even more expensive than it already is, if 
you have dry cooling. So you need to use wet cooling, which means you have to use water, which is usually scarce in the places that um, CSP is built in. So, you know, it's not, I just think that there's this incessant drumbeat around storage and variable electricity profiles, which is why CSP, nuclear, some of these other things still are around. I mean, I don't know if you've been following this crackpot, uh, Patrick Moore, who claims to be a co-founder of Greenpeace when there's actually real data to show that he wasn't a co-founder. But, you know, he's constantly like bad-mouthing solar PV, pushing CSP and other stuff because he thinks you need to have baseload reliable power when I think the data shows otherwise. Well, it's interesting because I talked to some of the big um, CSP developers to try to get more information about this, and they don't even see themselves as um, com- like they they don't see PV as the com- competition at all. They see natural gas. They see it really as a hedge for natural gas, and um, you know their big issue is well, first of all, the U.S. is not really the best market. Um, that you know South America, South Africa, Middle East are much much better markets for CSP, but the but the issues are around finance you know, the financing side, this being able to have certainty, um, having, being able to build these systems, having experience building the systems, using good technology. The one, the technology that Aruba divested was not, nobody thought it was a good technology. Um, they need to have, make sure they have a competitive supply chain so that they get, you know, price competitive. Um, you know, there's not just one person supplying um, equipment for this industry that can then hold them hostage with price. And then also, I guess the workforce is a real big issue because you need you can't just use somebody who worked at a natural gas plant to come and work on a CSP plant. It's just a totally different animal. <laughs> Definitely the U.S. market is a poor one for CSP. I mean, most utilities are reaching their RPS portfolios. You know, you've got the potential ITC drop. It's tough to finance projects and sign contracts for big projects with utilities. Uh, I think our team forecasts just a, a few megawatts in 2015 and then a few hundred in 2016 as uh, some of the projects in development come online. But they are moving to, say, countries with big mining operations that use a lot of diesel. There is still promise for industrial steam, uh, potentially pairing these projects with coal or natural gas plants. Like, I wouldn't say the technology is dead. There is some va- There are some high-value services that they can provide, but it is extremely difficult to br- build projects on their own, particularly here in the U.S., you're like Billy Crystal in Prince's Bride. It's not dead. He's mostly dead. You know? I mean, it's just I look, I mean, CSP is dead. Let's just call it. I mean, why would you possibly put a twenty megawatt or fifty megawatt CSP plant in a mining institution when you can just put PV in, leave the diesel generators there, and actually use the PV as a fuel saving measure? Or if you really want to make it go off grid, then add battery storage. Battery storage is way cheaper with solar than putting in CSP. On top of that, CSP can't be built by more than like five companies in the world. You would not trust your local contractor to build a CSP plant. You can only hire billion dollar companies like Arriva or Siemens or somebody else to the EPC. So then right there, you had to pay them an extra 25% margin just to do it. And so it just doesn't make any sense. It's just, even if you're a mining company, it's better to use a local contractor that you trust that can do PV. I mean, NREL just put out a report that calculates the total amount of acres that you need per gigawatt hour year. And so like standard PV, I think, was 4.4 
acres. Um, this is for like rooftop solar. Ground mounted solar was like 3.9 acres per gigawatt hour. And I think CSP was like 3. Point, no, actually CSP was like 4.4. Concentrating PV was down at like 3.6 acres per gigawatt hour. But ultimately, it's the same amount of land. I mean, to build CSP, first of all, you need a lot of land. Second of all, that land actually has to be graded to completely flat. If the heliostats are off by an inch or two, you're completely screwed. So now you have to pay a fortune just to make all this land flat, which is not good for the environment. Then you actually have to have these experimental technologies like molten salt and other stuff, which even the people who promote it can't tell you that that technology is going to last for 20 years and what the maintenance costs are really going to be. Next, you have to figure out how to cool these plants, which require water. And in these places, water is actually not that easy to come by. And then we can just keep going. Why the hell would you want all of that risk for something you know that like may or may not work? Hey, the thing is, well, okay, they have golf courses in the desert, right? And Ivanpah, the, the amount of water that it takes to cool, to use their dry cooling is like two golf holes over the course of the year. So compared to the golf course, it's not bad. Yeah, but that's not a good argument. I mean, compared to the compared to the natural gas engine that's next door, which would they would use for for um, for these otherwise, the the water consumption is sort of like half of what that natural gas and generator would use, but still a lot. I think you compare it to like solar PV or other stuff, it's a lot. I mean, look, I mean, it's not that these golf courses make sense. I mean, I think the golf courses will shut down too, particularly with the droughts in California. But it's just really around policy, right? I mean, you and I both know, Catherine, that these CSP plants cannot be built unless there's somebody at a very high level that wants them to be built because it takes eight to 10 years to build them. You know, I mean, it's just not an easy thing to build. And so the question is, should we be having CSP carved out in policy in Australia, South Africa, and all these other places? And the answer is absolutely not. And on top of it, you're talking about mega transmission projects to connect these CSP plants, which probably won't get done and are outrageously expensive. Right. So I just don't see GTM or Bloomberg or anybody else you know, who actually does these planning exercises for these folks putting this in. And now that Ariva is out of this market, Ariva used to be very deeply involved in these policy frameworks for South Africa and other places because they were selling other services like nuclear services. And now that they don't have an interest in pushing CSP, I don't see who CSP's friends are that are left. Well, now you can PayPal donations to the Desert Tech mega CSP project if you want. Shows how bad they're struggling. But I will take issue with your characterization of GTM. We have been talking about the decline of CSP for many years. Our savvy analysts have been modeling this stuff and comparing it to PV and to natural gas. And so, you know, I think our analysts have been talking about the decline of this technology for quite a while. I, on the other hand, am not ready to quite call it dead, but it is certainly very important that these large industrial players couldn't figure it out. And I think that speaks to the severe troubles that the industry is going to continue to go through. Well, I think it's one good sign is that Abengoa's Yield Co. was upgraded. So they're doing something, right? Oh, yeah. No, I, I agree completely. But the one thing that we don't talk about on a regular basis, and the CSP story gives us a chance to talk about, is that the way this stuff happens is through political wrangling and policy, right? The reason nuclear is in the doldrums right now is because of Fukushima, and nobody wants to touch it with a 10-foot pole. And there's a whole bunch of people who yell at us about how solar and wind are unreliable and nuclear would be better, but they don't have any political support. 
is if these large corporations decide to get out of CSP, there's nobody left that's in the room that's pushing for them. And if there's nobody left in the room that's pushing for them, they're not going to get included. I don't know. I still think it has a lot to do with the finance, financeability. All right. It's time to end the show and tell our listeners something they do not know. Catherine, we'll start with you. Yeah, this is in the weeds, um, as usual. But last Friday, um, the IRS, Department of Treasury, um, put out additional guidance for the production tax credit for wind um, that seems to put to rest any outstanding questions on, you know, what can be considered start of construction. And hopefully the tax equity folks will be happy and the wind developers continue to do what they can as long as they can. Very good for wind, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it was good. I think the developers were pretty certain that they already had the guidance they needed, but it, they were really needing the tax equity guys to get on board, too. Hmm. So this, this, it seems like this put to rest any outstanding questions. Jigger, tell us something we don't know. Well, so two things. One is that, um, so there's a lot of news reports coming out of China now that are saying that, as they say, not small number of PV systems are underperforming. Um, I definitely think that China to ramp up in 2012 uh, was dumping a lot of its poorest quality Chinese panels um, in China. Um, and I do think that that's you know, a bit of a problem. I do think China wants to upgrade to panels that are going to last longer. But it is sort of par for the course for China. They have a lot of poor quality solar hot water systems and a lot of poor quality other things. It's just, you know, I don't know whether it's cultural or what it is, but they seem to have a lot of these things. I don't think it's going to actually translate to any problems for us in the U.S. Um, the Chinese panels that come here are really high quality, but um, yeah, it is something to think about. Yeah, it also sounds um, like a grid interconnection issue, too. Same problem that wind faced a couple years ago. You saw hundreds, thousands of megawatts of wind projects sitting in interconnection queues, fully developed projects that simply didn't have a grid nearby or weren't connected up. And that's well, what we're seeing that. with solar projects too. So when I see these massive numbers coming out of China for solar deployment, I'm always very cautious about them because it's uncertain how many of those projects are actually producing electricity. No, I think you're absolutely right. And then the second thing I want to talk about is this group called Payperks. So there's a new group called Payperks, which is doing some really interesting stuff in using, you know, human behavior work to get people to do the right thing. And what they do is if you do the right thing on credit cards and other financial pieces, they'll actually put your give you a lottery ticket into weekly lotteries for $25, $50, $100 prizes. Um, and they're looking at actually potentially doing that for the electric utility space in getting people to use energy more efficiently, getting people to do other things um, that are, you know, deemed good and paying people through these lottery ticket chances um, with weekly prizes. And so I think that's really good. It's like another company that's besides Opower that's actually using human behavior in the energy space. All right. Well, I'm going to talk about uh, technology we have not yet discussed on this podcast that I would love to talk about for a full segment sometime, uh, wave and tidal generation. So like a week or two ago, the BBC reported on another tidal generator, a 400 kilowatt tidal generator being deployed off the coast of Wales that it labeled a landmark for the industry. And I read it and scoffed at the tone, which completely ignores the numerous so-called landmark wave and tidal generators that have failed over the last decade. And it's just the story really annoyed me for its lack of context. So 
obviously there's a great potential for generating electricity from the waves and the tide, but virtually no project, aside from a few that deploy uh, questionable damming practices on the tidal side, have succeeded. And that's because you're putting equipment in the harshest environment in the world and it inevitably breaks down. And then a study from Bloomberg New Energy Finance was released just today outlining those troubles. And according to the study, global wave power plants will only amount to about, uh, let's see, will only amount to about 21 megawatts by the end of the decade, 72% less than thought like a few years ago. Tidal projects will amount to 148 megawatts, about 21% less than thought. So just a word of caution for people when they talk about marine energy. The resource is definitely there, but the technical challenges are far from being addressed. And I'd love to talk about this more on a future podcast. Well, we should definitely talk about it. But honestly, the resource isn't there either. So, So Richard Perez at SUNY Albany is the king of this resource work. And basically, if we tapped into all of the known wave and tidal efforts, it would produce something on the order of 0.2 to 2 terawatt hours of electricity per year. And, you know, just to put that into context, the United States uses 4,000 terawatt hours a year. I haven't seen that study. Can you pass it along to me? Yeah, yeah. Check that out. I'm happy to. All right, cool. All right, well, that's all for the podcast this week. For links to the stories and resources we chatted about, go over to greentechmedia.com slash podcast. Don't forget to sign up to our live show in New York City and sign up for the Soft Grid Conference as well. If you want to connect with us and suggest story ideas or questions, send me an email. I'm at Lacey, L-A-C-E-Y, at greentechmedia.com. We've been getting a lot of email lately, so apologies if we're a bit slow to respond, but I definitely make sure Jigger and Catherine see those emails as well. Finally, a big thanks to eGage Systems for sponsoring this podcast. We always appreciate their support. Catherine, have a fantastic week. Thanks for carving out some time from your vacation to be with us. Go, go back to your family. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks. Jigger, have a good weekend. Don't do anything I wouldn't do. <laughs> I'm definitely not going to power lift. <laughs> with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw, I'm Stephen Lacey. And we are The Energy Gang, a production of greentechmedia.com. We'll catch you next week.